You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. begin with a prayer. Almighty God, by whose spoken word all things came into being, speak to us this day that we might be inspired by your Holy Spirit and drawn to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord. Amen. Begin with a reading from scripture from the 19th chapter of John. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and here they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Later, knowing that all was not completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it in a sponge, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We begin with just a word of thanks to your dean, Andrew Pearson, who is a friend and a brother, as he mentioned several times today. I'm grateful to be back here. I have been away from Birmingham for over 20 years, but it's here where I was born and reared, and it's good to be with you again. But if you come up and expect me to know who you are from 20 years ago, there's a chance I may not remember. I need to say also that the um, This place is a flagship for the evangelical gospel-centered faith, and that's something for which we in the Episcopal Church are so grateful for the leadership of this place and your dean, uh, and I pray that you will continue to have that kind of leadership for many years uh, to come. I'm also grateful that when I come here, I'm always inspired by the air conditioner vent in the pulpit. (laughs) Today it's heat, but it's not something we've done at St. Martin's in Houston yet, and now I'm considering it. Because uh, we could use that uh, in Houston. Uh, today I want to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, and tomorrow I'm going to talk about the empty tomb. Today, the cross. So, my wife, uh, nearly 34 years now, Laura and I are moviegoers. We go for fun and for escape and often for inspiration. And every now and then, when we go to a film, there comes a part when something bad is about to happen. And maybe it's that first brutal scene in Braveheart or the shower scene in Psycho. And sometimes when that happens, my Laura says, I'm going to close my eyes. Let me know when the bad part's over. Well, that may be exactly how we feel when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ. We love the old, old stories of the Bible, the sweet stories we tell in vacation Bible school. But when we get to the death of our Lord, many will rightly want to hold their breath. Some of us will be tempted to turn away and to close our eyes with the hope that Easter hallelujahs will let us know when the bad part is over. But let's not turn away. Let us today keep our eyes open. Let's take in the difficult truths of the story and then consider what hope there might be for us beyond it. What are those difficult truths? The cross was horrible. By all accounts, crucifixion was one of the most hideous means of dying ever devised by human beings. One fact says it all. No one who ever saw the crucifixion of Jesus ever drew a picture. 
Great millennialists, great artists for two millennia have painted Jesus on the cross, but they were not there. If you go to Rome today and you tour the catacombs where Christians were hiding in the first century, when people were actually still being crucified on the walls, you'll see lots of art, sketches of Jesus and Mary, Jesus the Good Shepherd, Jesus healing people. But the first known discovery of a small drawing of Jesus on a cross was not made until the 5th century in the Basilica of Santa Sabina in Rome. That's a hundred years after Romans stopped crucifying people. Why might the people who have been there not have at the same time taken the time to draw or paint what they were seeing? Because it was too horrible to take in. If you and I were there, we might have fainted. We would have been overwhelmed with the tidal wave of love incarnate when the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, were whispered. It was just not a regular crucifixion, just not another among the untold number of criminals destined for the cross under Roman rule. It was not just the physical pain. That was only a small part of Jesus' agony. The cross fractured the Trinity in some mysterious way beyond our knowledge as the one in three chose together to separate themselves. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hears as he pulls back and turns away from the very flesh in which he dwelt only hours before. He dies in this way as he lived to be as one of us, to show us the great love of the Father and to show us that God was not a God in the heavens, but a God among us, with us, Emmanuel, as we say at Christmastide. Don't turn away from the horror, turn toward the cross. The cross is messy. It was not just horrible, but messy. I mean, why this way? The scourging, the nails, the spear, the blood. What's that all about? Don't we just wish that Jesus chose a peaceful death, a less painful, less horrible death? Perhaps he could have chosen Socrates' way, calling his followers around him the beloved sage of the Athenians, condemned for corrupting the minds of youths, leads a discussion about the nature of the soul, and then his day comes to an end. He looks at his friends and says with a measure of cynical uh, humor, I think it better that I have a bath to save the women the trouble of washing the corpse. And so he bathes and he drinks a bit of hemlock and scolds his friends for weeping, He teaches a bit more and then quietly, gently closes his eyes. Not so with Jesus. He chooses the hard wood of the cross. He chooses not to rise above those for whom he has sent to die, but to sink as low as one can sink and even more. Tortured and stripped naked before those who hated him to humiliate him and before those who he loved in order to attempt to diminish him. Nailed to the wood and left to die, men clad in soldiers' garb sit near and laughing, playing games in the dirt. Men clad in religion stand off to one side, smiling, arrogant, cocky, thinking they have protected God by killing this false one. Women and a few others, John for sure, clad in anguishing sorrow, huddle at the foot of that hill, witnessing what seems to be unthinkable. Why the messiness of the cross? I once read an autobiography of a famous clergyman 
in which he honestly confessed of an incident between he and his wife. They were having an argument as he was dashing off to an airport to catch a plane for another big speaking engagement. As he was leaving and as they were arguing, she had the courage to say, you're not doing this out of love for God. And he shot back, well, if you're so smart, tell me why I do what I do. And she said, because you are vain and selfish and arrogant and egotistical. And he slammed the door and went to the airport. And on his flight to Denver, he broke down and wept. And when he landed, he couldn't get to the phone soon enough, calling his wife. And as she answered, he said, Elizabeth, you're right. You know, those who know us best know who we really are. And no one knows how messed up we are more than God in Christ. And because we are so messed up, we need a messy cross. Life is messy. Have you ever been through a divorce? It's messy. Have you ever witnessed the birth of a child? It's messy. Are you raising children, taking care of elderly parents? It is messy. Do you struggle to make ends meet? Do you to keep your spirits up, to keep discouragement down? It is messy. All of it's messy. Life is very, very messy. Friends, it takes a messy cross to heal a messed up world. Not a James Avery cross. Not a necklace or earrings or a gold stamp on your Bible or your prayer book, but a real cross, the old rugged cross in the words of that famous song. That's the real cross. And don't pretty it up. Because if we take away the awful horror and messiness of the cross, then we drain it of its awesome power that there is for us. Don't turn away from the messiness. Turn toward the cross. And the cross tells us the truth. We use the word atonement to describe the great exchange that happened on the cross. It has a nice theological ring to it. It's a nice way of saying what really happened. But do we really know what it means? You can't break a limb or step on a splinter without hurting your flesh, without infecting your body. A repair has to be made for the body to be made well. Do we really think it's any different with our soul? When you and I hurt one another, when we hurt God, when we disfigure our own souls by our sins, who we were created to be becomes impacted, affected, becomes infected. Now, God could have chosen one of two ways to deal with that. He could have made each of us carry the burden for our sins, somehow try to make up for it. But how would that work? I mean, how would you ever know if you had done enough to somehow negate the power of the hurt that I've done to others? Would my life not be a kind of endless struggle to take two steps forward for every one step backwards I had made? No, God knew that that would not work. So instead, he chose to tell the truth. He chose to acknowledge that the children he created and loved were also children who at times would turn away from him, deny him, even abandon him. Would heaping guilt upon guilt fix that problem? No. But loving them, Loving you, loving me to the very end would do that. So that's what God chose, love. You know, if you break down the word atonement, here's what it really means, at one moment. We're told when Jesus died, there was this amazing scene in the temple that the veil covered that covered the Holy of Holies, as the King James Version puts it, was rent in twain ripped in two. Matthew makes sure to add, beginning from the top, God himself 
removed the barrier between us and him. And on this side of the cross, God says, come to me, let there be at-one-ment between us. Have no fear. I've done the work. Let me take the punishment and you take the spoils of reward. The cross tells us that we are sinners and yet God in Christ has atoned for our sins. There's nothing more we do other than to bring that sin and bring our souls to him. So let the cross tell its truth. Don't turn away from the truth. Turn toward the cross. Well, with all that background, finally then, where is our hope? It is in the cross. Beyond the horror, beyond the messiness, beyond the atonement, there is hope. There is an Easter side to the cross. I'm going to think on that a bit tomorrow from this pulpit. But we see it already for if we can be freed of our own messiness, if God disarms the power of guilt and sin and the cross, he does so for no other reason but that we might know his peace and his salvation, not just after death, but here and now. I don't know if any of you have visited St. Martin's where I serve in Houston. We kind of sprawl over 15 acres not too far from the gallery. If you come out to shop, you might want to come worship with us. Uh, we take a lot of time taking care of our buildings and grounds, tending to what God has entrusted to our care. Not too long ago, I was actually driving some visiting family members off to the Houston rodeo. And as I passed in front of the church, I got a bit ticked off that someone had hammered a poster on the utility pole right in front of the St. Martin's sign. And this is what the poster said, 1-800-GOT-JUMP. And I thought, well, that's going to have to come down. It's, uh, it's not the St. Martin's way, not the Episcopal way. That's so tacky. So I immediately called my uh, uh, building and ground supervisor to go pull that sign down. Well, I dropped my family off at the rodeo, headed back home. And as I pulled onto the 610 loop that encircles the center of Houston, oddly enough, a big truck pulled right in front of me. 1-800-GOT-JUMP and plastered right along the back, and it had this uh, description below, the world's largest junk removal system. Well, seeing that message twice in a day, and I was headed toward Lent, so I thought maybe I was getting a message, and it set me to thinking. You know, I take out the trash virtually every day, and it get picks up a few times every week, but, but junk is different. Junk is that old stuff that lays around the house for months and for years. And you know you just can't either bring yourself to get rid of it or you really don't want to take the time to deal with it. So it just sits around gathering dust and taking up space. You know, that old set of golf clubs you held on to for the grandchild who never picks up golf or the beanie babies you just know will someday will go for thousands on eBay or VHS tapes. You have no machine to play them. Uh, It's not trash. It's junk. And you probably do have to call somebody to come and haul it away. There's sins we have that are like trash. You know, the impatient honk of the horn, the careless remark to a loved one, a moment of lust or greed, the kinds of things we all struggle with perhaps every day. We know to say, I'm sorry. And we do uh, that. And hopefully as Christians, we also offer up that sorrow uh, to God as well. But then there's junk. The old resentment you just can't give up. The lawsuit you know is unjustified. The barrier you have allowed to remain between you and your brother or sister. 
your father or mother, your old business partner, your ex, that dark thing you did so long ago that only you and God know about and frankly, only God can cure. I'm gonna be a little crass, but it is true. It's not a big blue trunk with green lettering that will take care of that kind of junk. The cross really is the world's largest junk removal service. Spiritual junk is like real junk. Perhaps it's laid around your soul for so long you've gotten used to it, gathering the dust of guilt heaped upon guilt. If there's that kind of stuff in there, if there's that kind of stuff in you, then it's taking up room that rightly belongs to God's spirit and God's peace and God's salvation, and it's time to bring it to the cross. Don't turn away. Turn toward the cross. And how do we do that? You know, we have to confess as much as we Christians talk about the mercy and the forgiveness there is in the cross. We're not really completely sure how it all works. We just believe that it does. We trust in the hope that it offers. We bring our sin and our guilt and our hopelessly messed up lives to the foot of the cross. And we're told, we're promised time and time again, if we hand those over, God takes them and makes every single bit of them right. And he removes those things that get in the way of our relationship with him. He absorbs whatever darkness there is in his grace. And in its place, he places himself within you. So don't turn away from the cross. Turn toward it. Keep your eyes open and see the lengths to which he has gone to save you and me. Keep your ears open and hear his words. Father, forgive them. Keep your soul open and receive his promise, his final words that hold such great truth for messy, messed up, self-justifying sinners like you and me. It is finished. Don't turn away. Turn toward the cross of Jesus and receive what only God in Christ can give. His mercy and his peace and his love. New life indeed. Turn toward the cross of Jesus. It is why we call the day of his crucifixion Good Friday. For it was good indeed. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of all lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may humble themselves and turn to the cross of Jesus that we may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.